What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Let the story really solidifies what I believe is some of the most important things that we can ever learn about sport. And that is what it does for us as individuals. I am so excited to have with us today on Burn It All Down, Kat Williams, a professor of American history at Marshall University. And she's also board president of the International Women's Baseball Center. She is the author of The All-American Girls After the AAGPBL, How Playing Pro Ball Shaped Their Lives, and a new and exciting book that we're gonna talk about today, Isabel Lefty Alvarez, The Improbable Life of a Cuban-American Baseball Star. Welcome to Burn It All Down. Thank you, it's pretty exciting to be here. Tell our listeners a little bit about Lefty. Lefty. Wow. Lefty is still alive and she suffers from dementia. So I sometimes refer to her in the past tense and, and it's not because it, for any reason other than I just have not really been around her or communicate with her for a while. But Lefty was just an amazingly kind, volatile, exciting person. And she was also one of the most mysterious people I ever met. And I tell this story about first meeting her, and I think this gives a sense of who she was. I went in 2003 to the 60th anniversary of the AAGPBL. They have a players association and people can become associate members and, and go to these reunions. And I had not been to one before, and it was, as I say, 2003, it was in Syracuse. I was pretty nervous about going. There are all these women who are obviously superstars, right? Like half the world, I had seen A League of Their Own about 150 times. And so I was really nervous. And I was standing in the lobby, looking around. There are all these gray-haired women all standing around talking, chatting with one another, and very animated. And, and I'm just standing there thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And all of a sudden, this short, bubbly woman comes up to me. She says, have you seen Jane? And I said, I don't know Jane. Before I could even really get that out of my mouth, she said, oh, holy cow, there she is over there. Here, you can carry this and, and follow me. That was Lefty. She handed me her suitcase and took off across the lobby with me following her, carrying her suitcase. where we came up to this other woman who was far more sort of in charge. That was Jane Moffat, who was indeed in charge. She was the vice president of the Players Association. And when I got there, standing there, Jane didn't even look at me. She looked at Lefty and she said, who's this? And Lefty said, I don't know. She had a nice face and I, so I thought she could carry my suitcase. And Jane said, so you just give your suitcase to strangers? And Lefty started to say something and from behind me I heard, I don't know, Jane, she does have a nice face and she's got a funny name, Kit Kat. 
That was Beans Reisinger, another former player. I remained Kit Kat to Beans until 2008 when she died. At that moment, Beans said, oh yeah, you know what? She does have a nice face, Jane. She could carry your luggage too. They all took off across the lobby with me carrying both Jane's and Lefty's luggage. Now I'm old enough to remember Candid Camera. And so I'm standing in this lobby thinking, what just happened? I carried their luggage to their rooms. That was Lefty. That kind of openness to strangers, this uh, here I am, and of course no one is gonna do anything dishonest because everybody's as wonderful as I am. That was my first experience around Lefty, but over a period of time we became friends. I have always had a love for and appreciation and a curiosity for Cuba, for Cuban culture and music and the politics of it all. When I found out that she was from Cuba, we just started talking and her stories from living in Cuba and her stories from that period of coming to the United States were just hair raising some of them. We became friends. From there, I was encouraged to take some of those stories and put them into a book and tell Lefty's story. She doesn't follow a typical Cuban immigrant trajectory in terms of the years we're talking about and the experiences. How'd she get there? Lefty grew up in a household of family members who loved baseball. She was surrounded by baseball. And Lefty was a fabulous athlete. One of the things I do in the book is I talk about these different sports. She played volleyball and soccer and she fenced and she did all these other sports. So she was just basically a really good all-around athlete, but she loved baseball and she played baseball on the street, as did most kids at the time, even the girls. But she was really good at it. You've got that as the foundation, but then you back up. Lefty's mother was very complicated. She wanted Lefty to be very solidly identified as middle class. She wanted her to have all the things that she herself didn't have. So she tried to get her into beauty pageants. Lefty was incredibly beautiful. That was not going to work. She tried these other sports and was that Lefty's way out of poverty? Was that Lefty's way out of Cuba? But then she got word somehow that a man named De Leon, some people call him a wine merchant, and I'm not sure that is exactly how you would describe him, but he was a businessman in Cuba. And he had connections with Philip Wrigley and Arthur Meyerowitz, who were involved in the the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. These feminine phenoms play in the All-American Girls Baseball League, which keeps the turnstiles clicking in the loops eight Midwest cities. South Bend, Fort Wayne, Peoria, Rockford, Kenosha, Grand Rapids, and Kalamazoo. Look close, folks. This is not softball, but real Major League-type baseball. And they had started a women's league in Cuba patterned after the All-Americans. They had very similar uniforms and very similar rules. And they did that as in preparation for the All-Americans coming to Cuba to play exhibition games and for spring training. Lefty's mother somehow or another got word of that. She said to Lefty, you're going to go and you're going to try out. And she did. In 1947, they went spring training. And we had exhibition games. And to let you know, I pitched that one game. I did very well. That's what my mother told me. Mm -hmm. 
She was at the game. That was the first time my mother saw me playing. That's when they decided they were going to bring four Cubans to the United States. Yeah, the manager, the Cuban manager, you're going to be next. And it was De Leon that gave Lefty her first baseball glove. He is the one who said to her, according to Lefty's memory, you're a true athlete, you're a real athlete, and you're going to do well. When they were establishing the Cuban League, when did they establish it, and why did they decide to do this in Cuba? The All-American League started in 1943. And it was after just a couple of years that Philip Wrigley, who was one of the original founders, kind of got out of it. I mean, he could see the war was coming to an end. Arthur Meyerowitz, who had worked with Wrigley for many years, was an advertising executive. He took it over. And because his area was PR, was advertisement, he understood this league is not going to last if we don't recruit elsewhere. If we don't expand the interest, they saw this as an opportunity to do both. One of the things that they did was plan spring training in 47 to coincide with the appearance of Jackie Robinson, and they were all there together. And that kind of opened up some possibilities for both the men and the women. The idea of doing a Latin American exhibition tour, that was Meyerowitz. And going to Cuba, that was Meyerowitz. Now, I'm not saying it was him alone, but that was his, under his leadership. The Cuban women, in terms of their actual team, I am not sure when they began practicing, putting together the team. But I suspect if the, the U.S. team was coming in 47, they had to know a year or more in advance, and I believe that they started that process well in advance of the U.S. players coming. This, friends, is Havana, Cuba, and in the background yonder is famous Morro Castle. In the foreground are some Bonitas Senoritas Americanas, for their kids from the USA who have figuratively taken Havana over in a feminine peacetime invasion. A whole army of girls in uniform. Watch. That's right, an army of baseball players. Not softball, but hardball stars of the All-American Girls Baseball League here for training. I think it's multifaceted. I think it was a way to bring more money into the endeavor by expanding into other markets. Also to bring in more ballplayers. There had already been some interest. There was one Cuban woman that came before but don't, did not stay very long. They already kind of knew there were players that they could recruit. The Latin American tours were successful on one hand, but they were not ultimately successful in broadening the reach of the league. They did not ultimately establish a Latin American branch of the All-Americans. But they do recruit a few of them to come to the United States, which is how Lefty got there. So That's right. That's how right. was that journey? There were four women that came sort of at the same time. Lefty was the youngest, so she really was kind of looked after. She tells a story about getting recruited, her mother saying, oh yeah, this is great, you're going to go to America, and you're going to be a professional ball player, and she was very excited. And Lefty tells a story about her family taking her to the airport. She said she doesn't even remember what any of them said. Lefty didn't even look back. She got on the steps going up to that airplane with a suitcase and a ball glove and didn't look back. And in some ways, because her mother had that kind of confidence in her, I think Lefty had confidence. But because there were three other players that traveled with her, she also had some camaraderie. She had some people who did speak Spanish and could help her. But it was hard. 
it was a hard transition. Some of the stories she tells about, she said, I got off the plane or the train ultimately in Chicago. And there were these people who met me there with a coat. She said, I've never had a coat. You know, so this is springtime in Chicago. And so that kind of thing, plus she did not speak English. It was extremely difficult, but yet most of the time Lefty talks about those experiences in a way that would make you think, eh, it was no big deal, but it had to be a big deal. If you can get her to talk about some of the downside of that transition to living in the U.S., it's loneliness and it's uncertainty, but mostly what comes out of it is, hey, I came to the U.S., I got to play baseball, I have a baseball family now, and I'm an American citizen. So how's her pro career? Lefty was a good ball player. Lefty was not a fantastic ball player. She was a pitcher for the most part, and she was indeed pretty good. She plays how many seasons? She played from 47, and she got injured at the beginning of 54. She missed one year and then got injured at, in that last season. So that's a decent chunk of time. Yeah. I include her stats in the back of the book. At my insistence, they are in there. Lefty was not insistent. And in fact, it took me several years to get Lefty to agree to let me write this book. And she said, no, because I am nobody. I had a sixth grade education. I came to the United States. I wasn't even the best ball player. You need to write a book about Dottie Kamenchak, or you need to write a book about Sophie Curry's. I'm like, there are 12 of those. We don't need another one. What Lefty represented is what I think some of the most important things about sports, women and gender in sports, and specifically baseball, and that is that connection to community. It is the use of that sport, the use of baseball as a way to get through difficult times. And that was certainly true for my own life. And so when I recognized that in Lefty, I realized that's the story. It's not what a great ball player she was. It has so little to do with her stats, but it has a lot to do with what baseball did for her. That is my concept of sport identity, using intersectionality as a way forward. So I took that idea, that concept of intersectionality, a step further because I'm convinced that someone can know me. They can know my life story. They know my race, my gender, my ethnicity, my sexuality, all of those things. But if you eliminate the element of sport from, from that mix, then you really don't know who I am. And the same is true of Lefty. And that's what sport identity is about. Yeah. What happens to her after? Lefty herself talks about how lost she was after the league ended. The league ended in 1954. As I said, she had a sixth grade education. By that time, she spoke English, but it was, not, it was not good. So finding a job, being able to take care of herself was very difficult. One of the families that had been her sponsor, the, the Blee family, they helped her get a green card and then ultimately helped her get citizenship uh, in the U.S. They were also helping her trying to find employment. Mr. Blee was, uh, I don't remember exactly what his job was at General Electric, but he was a manager or something. And he helped to get Lefty a job at General Electric plant in Fort Wayne. That became sort of a foundation for her, but she was still pretty lost. Lefty unfortunately developed a drinking habit 
she talks about a number of times wrecking various cars and not remembering how she got home. There was no sport. She played some softball. She played softball at uh, American Turners. And even that was fraught because she had some friends who sort of took advantage of her. She didn't have that connection to her, what she calls her sporting self. She worked at GE until she retired. In the early to mid-80s, the All-Americans, the former players, started to work toward reconnecting with one another. They, in the early 80s, had their first reunion, and Lefty went to that reunion. And when she did, she tells the story of knowing about it and realizing that she needed to get in shape. And by that, I mean stop drinking and be the person that those women knew her to be. And she was able to do that. And she talks about walking into the hotel lobby at that first reunion. And she walked in and people didn't really recognize everyone. But when Lefty opened her mouth because of her accent, people said, oh, Lefty, Lefty. And she became Lefty, not Isabel, because when she wasn't playing, she was Isabel. That is why she wanted me to call her Lefty throughout this book, because she felt like she had lost herself. And then she found herself again when she found those women again. And she identifies with them and believes that because they know her as Lefty, that's her true self. Lefty had a difficult time in those years after the league ended. She only went back to Cuba a couple of times, and that was also fraught. But once she rediscovered those women, once she became reconnected with the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League Players Association, she felt like she was really herself. As she says, she found her sport self again. It's amazing what other people's believing in you can, can provoke in yeah. you sometimes. Yeah. When they're the yeah. right people. That's um, right. You have written extensively about women's pro baseball. What did this story bring to, you know, by centering her, how, how did this enrich the way that you look at that history? First of all, it expands our knowledge and our understanding beyond the Midwest of the United States. That is where the league started and that is where most of the teams were. But there were also, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but 30-something Canadian players who played in the league. There were the four Cuban players who played in the league. There were no Black players who played in the league. It was indeed segregated. What we know about that league, what we know about those women, is compacted into, for most people, one season and a movie called A League of Their Own. All white all what you would, quote, expect. And so what I did with this was these women were in many ways multicultural, but it was also about expanding the definition of baseball. By that, I mean, it's not just about stats. As president of the International Women's Baseball Center, I am always talking about women's baseball history and the importance of girls and women in the game and these myths that women are just now entering the game when we have been part of the game since the game's inception. 
when I'm talking about those things, I'm constantly asked, well, you know, a woman's never going to make it to the major leagues. So what's the point? Well, who cares? The major leagues is so not the definition of baseball for me. How many men, how many boys who play little league actually make it to the major leagues? I mean, it's a tiny little percentage. Because of that, I think it's important for us to look at these different stories, look at politics, culture, society, all through the lens of sport. That's what this book does. It gives us an insight, a little bit of insight into Cuban culture through the lens of sport, but it also gives us an understanding of women's baseball in the middle part of the 20th century. With all of your historical perspective, can you give listeners a sense then, you know, how do you see baseball today, women's baseball? How would you update their understanding? How would you epilogue your epilogue? First of all, as one of the founders and the president of the International Women's Baseball League, we got together because there was no place where women's and girls' history in the game of baseball, all aspects of baseball internationally, there was no place where that was preserved. So it starts there. But for me, it's not just about preserving the history. It's about taking that history out of the shadows and using it. I am a firm believer in the saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Girls have to know they stand on the shoulders of greatness. And girls that want to play baseball stand on the shoulders decades and decades of greatness. Women did not enter the game of baseball in 1943 with the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and they did not stop playing or being part of it in 1954. If you drew a timeline of women's baseball, girls and women in baseball history internationally, the All-Americans would be a tiny little blip on that line. They'd be an important one, but they're a tiny little blip. And so for us, we started to say, our history is alive. It's exciting. We have to use that history to show girls today that they are not alone. If they want to umpire or coach or play or tend the fields or keep the stats, they can do that because they are not the first ones to do that. That's our jumping off place. That's what IWBC is about. In entering that world, I have learned that there are a lot of organizations out there that have as their primary focus getting girls on the field if they want to play. Baseball for all is one. There are a lot of people out there making this happen. The state of women's baseball is we are not anywhere near where we should be. We have a long way to go, but we are not new to this game. It is absolutely wrong to call baseball America's game when 50% of Americans can't play it. Girls need to have an opportunity to be on the field. They need to have an opportunity to play Little League, which they do. But it's my opinion. What we need is an all-women's baseball league, a professional or semi-professional baseball league. We need to have feeder leagues. And we have people working toward that. But we have a long way to go. The biggest message I hope that people get from this is we can't stand back and wait for this to happen. 
Nobody's going to do this for us. We have got to break the cycle. We have got to say enough. We appreciate so much you being on the show, Professor Cat Williams. I want to remind our listeners, the book is called Isabel Lefty Alvarez, The Improbable Life of a Cuban-American Baseball Star. It's at University of Nebraska Press. It's hot off those presses and highly, highly recommended. Thanks Thank again. You. Thank you very much. Well, that is perfect amount of fire and passion for a podcast called Burn It All Down. <laughs> we thank hey, you. I'm all about burning it all down. <laughs> we are too. Burn it down, build it up, rethink yep. everything. That's um, right. 